We will be continuing our teaching series, Seven Churches, A Call to Repentance and Reformation in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Last Sunday, we looked at the church in Smyrna. We learned that it was a faithful church that suffered intense persecution. And this morning, we're going to look at the church at Pergamum. Let me give you some background on Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor, situated about 60 miles north of Smyrna, about 100 miles north of Ephesus. Um, it was not a port city like Ephesus and Smyrna. It sat 16 miles inland from the Aegean Sea on a large, isolated, thousand-foot-tall hill. Um, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not a center of or for commerce and trade. Uh, it was a center for culture, a center for education, a, a center for religion. It featured an impressive library with 200,000 handwritten volumes, thus making it the second largest library in the ancient world. For those of you who know your history, you know the largest library was located in Alexandria, Egypt, but it was unfortunately burned down in 48 B.C. According to legend, in 43 B.C., Mark Antony seized the 200,000 handwritten volumes in Pergamum and gave them to his then new wife, the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, so that she could restock the library at Alexandria once it was rebuilt. Now, due to the sheer volume of literary works that were being produced in Pergamum, a, a new type of writing material had to be developed to keep up with the demand. They began to experiment with animal skins, thus inventing parchment. The word Pergamum is derived from the Latin word Pergamenum, which actually means parchment. And maybe you're familiar with parchment and what that is, but it's actual animal skin that they wrote on back in the ancient days. It, it all started in Pergamum. Pergamum was devoted to worshiping various Greco-Roman gods, as the other cities in that area were. It had a temple to Zeus, a temple to Athena, a temple to Asclepios, and a temple to Dionysus. Uh, but it was mostly known for its emperor worship. Uh, the very first temple honoring a Roman Caesar was built in Pergamum in 29 BC, thus making it the birthplace of this imperial cult. And it was built by Caesar Augustus in honor of Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, for you history buffs. Later Caesars, such as Trajan and Severus was his name, Severus, they also built temples in Pergamum. The city's fervent devotion to Rome and its emperor made life extremely difficult and very dangerous for the Christians who lived there. Prior to this letter, this church had gone through an intense period of persecution where one of its own members had been killed for being faithful to Christ. We see this in verse 13, Antipas. The death of this beloved brother 
and constant threat of more violence and bloodshed had a profound impact on this whole church. Some in the church held the line and remained faithful to Christ in word and in deed, despite the great threat. They were like the Christians in Smyrna. Others made theological and moral compromises in an effort to fit in with the culture and therefore decrease the threat. Now, this church was in great danger from the world, no doubt, but it was in even greater danger from the Lord Jesus Christ who will not tolerate sinful behavior in his church. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Our text for this morning will be verses 12 through 17. Look down at verse 12 with me. The text says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let me stop right there. So the letter begins with a, a simple greeting. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. That's who the greeting is from. Uh, the one who bears this sharp two-edged sword is Christ himself. The sharp two-edged sword is his weapon of choice, and it proceeds from his mouth. We learned that back in chapter 1, verse 16. And since it comes from his mouth, it proceeds from his mouth, we know that he is referring to his word. And Christ addresses his letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Well, the Greek word for angel can also be translated as messenger, and that is the meaning here. Think messenger. And the messenger that we have in mind here, or that Jesus has in mind, was very likely an elder or pastor from this church that represented this church. So that's the greeting. That's who it's addressed to. Now we can move to verse 13a and really get into the letter itself. Christ says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Stop there. Pergamum was a, a dark, wicked city. It was so evil that, that Christ associates it with Satan's throne. He tells them that it's as if Satan has a throne in your city. I know that you dwell there in the place where Satan has a throne. And if you're like me, you have an investigative kind of mind. You want to know what made it so evil. What made it so evil? It was obviously the pagan religion. One of Pergamum's main attractions was its massive, massive altar to Zeus. This structure dominated the city's acropolis. It was a, a colonnaded court in the form of a horseshoe. It was 120 feet long and 112 feet wide. The base had a, a frise that ran all the way around the structure, 464 feet long. It depicted the most important battle in Greco-Roman religion where the giants fought against the gods for control over the cosmos. It was called the Gigantomachy. It was one of the, the greatest works of Hellenistic art in that time. In addition to this, the massive altar to Zeus, the city also had a shrine to Asclepios, the god of medicine and healing. He is depicted as a snake 
Sound familiar? Genesis 3, the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. The temple in his honor was overrun with non-venomous snakes that could allegedly impart his healing power. This is not a building that Indiana Jones would have visited. Now, people would travel from all over the region to come to this temple and worship this god, Asclepios, the god of healing. And they would literally lie on the ground with the snakes, hoping to be healed from their maladies. Any of you snake lovers in here? There's like three or four of you. Repent. Oh, I hate snakes. As soon as I see them out in the country, I just run from them. The city, however, the city's most popular form of pagan religion was not its Greco-Roman religion to, to Asclepios and Athena and those, those, those false gods of the Romans. It wasn't that. It was its Caesar worship. That was the prevailing kind of religion there and devotion there. Its citizens were required to, to visit the temple honoring Caesar Augustus very regularly, every week, and they were required to pledge their allegiance to him by declaring, Caesar is Lord. And they were required to worship him very regularly uh, through making financial offerings or tithes in his name. Now, when we think of Greco-Roman religion, you know, when we think of Zeus and Athena and, and Asclepios and, and all of this stuff, we we kind of trivialize it and we're kind of entertained by it. I mean, Hollywood is, is putting out movies that reflect it all of the time, but we, we trivialize it and, and we think of it as, as like ancient mythology, right? It's ancient mythology and, and, and sometimes we're required to study ancient mythology, whether it be Egyptian, Greek, or Roman, we're required to study it in college. And so we really downplay it. But do you know what Christ calls it? Satan's throne. It's not for our entertainment. This was a, a blasphemous false religion that made this city intensely evil. The, the city's unwavering commitment to pagan religion and to, to Rome and to the Caesars, to Satan, made life extraordinarily difficult for the Christians who lived there. And Christ recognizes this, and he commends them in the next line in 13b. Look at what Christ says. Yet, you live in this terrible, wicked city, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So after acknowledging the evil atmosphere in Pergamum, Christ commends the church for consistently clinging to him and for keeping the faith at the present hour as well as in the past during the days of Antipas. The days of Antipas refers uh, to a period of intense violent persecution where Christians in Pergamum were hunted like animals and killed for sport. And Typus was a, a faithful witness. He was a member of this church, and he was the guy mentioned here as being killed during this period. Now, the Greek word for witness is uh, martus, is how we would pronounce it, martus, from which we get the word what? 
martyr. So Christ is basically referring to Antipas as his faithful martyr, one who was put to death for loving and believing and following and being faithful to me. That's what Christ is telling this church. Now, the Bible says nothing about Antipas beyond what we see in this actual text. This is the only place where he is mentioned in the New Testament in Scripture. Tradition tells us that he was an actual leader in this church and that he was martyred, he was killed or murdered by being placed in a large brass cauldron shaped like a bull and he was roasted to death. And Christ, after describing Antipas and those wicked days and his faithful servant who was martyred, Christ reiterates how utterly evil this city was by calling it the dwelling place of Satan. And in the next two verses, Christ exposes the compromisers, those who are making compromisers in this church, and he identifies their sin. Let's move to verses 14 and 15. Christ says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. We typically call him Balaam, but it's pronounced Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And then in verse 15 there, he says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The compromisers in this church had adopted two types of worldly teaching and uh, practice. We're going to analyze both of them. First, the teaching of Balaam. We We read about Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. He was a prophet from Aram who could be hired to pronounce blessings or curses on one's enemies. He was literally thought of or called a prophet for hire. If you wanted somebody to do some divination on somebody who wronged you, this is the guy you called. This was the Cleo of that day. But you could get this Cleo to curse your ex-friend or ex-husband or whoever it is that you wanted to curse. And at one point, he was hired by King Balak of Moab to pronounce curses on his enemies, the Israelites. Uh, Balaam accepted the offer, came to the plains of Moab, and made three attempts to curse Israel. But God stifled him each time, instead using his mouth to bless Israel. <laughs> so he would show up and start shouting at the Israels and try to put curses on them. He would say, God really loves you. What is going on? He would, God would literally reverse his speech and he would praise, he would... Um, it, he would exalt them or bless them, preach blessings over them instead of curses. So he totally failed at this. But Balaam, even though he was highly frustrated, he would not give up. He developed a new strategy. Since he couldn't curse Israel with his mouth, he decided to try to corrupt them. And he told Balak to put a stumbling block before the Israelites. And when they came to Shittim, That's precisely what he did. That stumbling block was the daughters of Moab. And when the Israelites entered the city and the men saw those attractive foreign women, 
They began to, not my word, the Bible's word, whore with them. Numbers 25, 1. But this was only the first phase of Balaam's wicked plan. The second phase involved persuading the daughters of Moab to intermarry with the men of Israel, thus pulling them into the idolatrous, immoral culture of Moab. Numbers 31, verse 16. The daughters of Moab agreed, and unfortunately, so did the Israelite men. The next thing you know, these men were worshiping the God of Moab, Baal. We call him Baal, it's Baal. They were eating food sacrificed to idols, to uh, Baal. And they were committing sexual immorality. They were sleeping around, not just with their Moabitist wives, but with other women and other men's wives and this stuff. There was all this sexual immorality swirling around. Numbers 25, verses 2 and 3. And God's judgment at that time against Israel was swift and devastating. The chiefs who were supposed to provide leadership to the people were hanged. And the men who yoked themselves with those women and their false god were put to death by judges. Numbers 25, verses 4 through 5. When it was all said and done, 24,000 people were executed. Numbers 25, verse 9. This was a terrible period for Israel. Now, the teaching of Balaam has to do with creating stumbling blocks and coaxing the people of God to return to paganism and and to idolatry and to sexual immorality. In other words, it has to do with trying to get the people of God who are new people to go back to their old lives and to live those old pagan lives. That's what the teaching of Balaam has to do with. And and Christ tells us in the text that some in the church at Pergamum held this teaching. How sad. Number two, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a, a cult group that claimed to be Christian but practiced licentiousness. Licentiousness means a a lack of moral restraint, especially with respect to sexual conduct. The Nicolaitans were the free grace-pushing antinomians of the first century. They disregarded the law of God and treated grace as a license to sin. And they taught others to follow their wicked example. They were heretics, heretics. Christ also tells us that some in the church at Pergamum held this teaching. Now together, those who held the teachings of Balaam and those who held the teachings of the Nicolaitans, these two groups were basically destroying the church's credibility in that community. They were diminishing its ability to reach and evangelize unbelievers. And worst of all, they were bringing disgrace to its head. Jesus Christ. In the next line and a half, we see the Lord take action. Let's move to verses 16 and 17a. Here's Christ's call to them, his call to repent and reform. He says, therefore, because you hold these teachings, these practices, therefore, repent 
repent. And he says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In 17a, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ commands the church to repent, to repent. The Greek word for repent is metanoeo, and it has to do with a, having a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. And after commanding them to, to change their minds about this behavior, to change their, their, their behavior and all of that, after calling them to repent, he threatens them. He literally threatens them. If they do not repent, he will what? Come and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? His word. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that his word is a mighty weapon. In fact, it's the mightiest weapon in all creation, in the cosmos, in the heavens. It's not an AR-15, it's not a, a literal sword, it's not a pocket knife, it's not a tank, it's not a nuke. It is his word. His word is a mighty weapon. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. It destroys arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It makes his enemies fall prostrate on their faces before him. John 18, 16. You remember when he identified himself in the Garden of Gethsemane? I am, and all of his adversaries, over 200 of them, fell down and worshipped him. Then they got right up and arrested him because that was his will. His word, it creates life. Genesis 1, Colossians 1.16, it sustains life. Matthew 4.4, 4, men shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God that proceedeth from his mouth. And guess what else his word can do? It can destroy life. Revelation 19.21. In essence, Christ is telling the pastors, elders, and faithful members of this church to wake up and take action. Wake up, look around you, see what people in this church are doing and do something about it. He is telling them to, to stop the worldly compromise, to stop tolerating this unequal yoke, he is telling them to purge the church of these ungodly, immoral influences, or he will come and do it for them. If you don't take care of this sin, I will come and war against them with the most powerful weapon known to man in the cosmos. My word, the sword, that's what he's telling them. In verse 17a, we see the statement Christ closed each of his seven letters with. Like I said last Sunday, it stresses the vital significance of what he has said thus far. It is the Holy Spirit 
who opens ears, opens hearts, and reveals truth. And Christ exhorts this church to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, thus emphasizing their responsibility to read this letter, to read the other letters to the other churches, to read the entire book of Revelation, and to obey His Word. In the last line, we see Christ make a promise to the church at Pergamum. Let's move to 17b. I need a drink before I move on. Steady stream, getting dried out. I got dry mouth. Mm. Christ says this, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's the promise. To the one who conquers, Christ will give two things. The Greek word for conquers is nikau. It means to win the victory, to be victorious. It's kind of a a militaristic term, right? One army conquers another. I love that. To the one who conquers, I will give two things. To the one who is victorious over this issue and every other issue, to that one I will give two rewards, two promises. He's basically telling them to enter into warfare and to conquer, to win. And who are they ultimately warring against? The Christians who are compromisers? No, the one who has a throne there. Satan. That's who they are to war against. Because he is the one who has infiltrated this church in some of these people. So our warfare is against the demonic realm, against Satan, not against other brothers and sisters in Christ, not against you know, those who are not in the church, not against Democrats or Republicans. Oh, those Democrats, we should give them an island. Oh, those Republicans. Oh, Trump. Trump is an adversary in some ways if he would just get off Twitter. Now, when I said that, I made myself look like I support the other side. I don't want to support either side. Support the kingdom of God. This is a call to war or else I will come in war. But if you war and if you conquer, here's what I will give you. Those who did not, and the the conquerors would be these two groups, right? Those who did not adopt the false teachings and practices of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and remained faithful to Christ unto death, that is a group of conquerors. And those who got caught up in those teachings and practices and yet repented, obeyed the Spirit's word, and remained faithful to Christ unto death. They are also conquerors. And both types represent true Christians because true Christians are conquerors. They are. They are conquerors. They win their victories. It may take time, but they will be victorious because their Savior 
is victorious. He has overcome the world, which allows us through the Holy Spirit to be overcomers, to be conquerors. Both types represent true Christians. Now, we need to talk about what Christ promised to give those who conquer. Two things, as I said. Number one, the hidden manna. What an interesting statement. What an interesting thing this is. Manna was a honey-flavored bread with which God fed the Israelites during their years of wandering in the wilderness, Exodus 16, 14. And like many elements of Israel's covenant with God, the manna pictured and pointed to something greater, something eternal and heavenly. Specifically, the manna was one of the great Old Testament symbols of the Messiah to come of the Messiah who did come, Christ, right? We see this in John 6, 48 uh, to verse 51. Jesus, or Christ, the manna, he is the, the bread of life who came down from heaven, John 6, 48 through 51, same text. And he is the one who provides, because he's this bread of life, this manna, he provides spiritual, spiritual sustenance to his people, Okay? So when he promises faithful believers, conquerors, that he will give them some of the hidden manna, he is promising to give them all of the spiritual blessings that come with knowing and loving him. Ephesians 1.3. And there's a phenomenal list of these spiritual blessings right there in Ephesians 1.3 through 14. On your own time, slip over there and take a look at these things. They're amazing. So the hidden manna has to do with having Christ and Christ imparting his spiritual nourishment and blessings to them. They will gain this. They will have this hidden manna. Number two, a white stone inscribed with a new name known only by the one who receives it. Now this is a bit mysterious. This is interesting to me. And it is coded language, but it has meaning. Now, the Romans, in this context, think of the context. The Romans gave the victors in athletic competitions a white stone inscribed with the athlete's name. So there's the connection right there. And, and, and don't think it's wrong for Christ or anyone in Scripture to use the examples from their context to illustrate truth. The greatest teachers in history do this. They pull from a contextual example, and that is what Christ is doing. When he talks about a white stone, they're thinking, hey, it's the trophies that are given to those Roman athletes who, who conquer and win in those Roman games. It was literally, the white stone with their name on it was literally their trophy. It signified their victory, and it, it served as their ad mission pass to a great celebratory banquet for the winners. So it wasn't just a trophy acknowledging your win, it was your pass into a special, unique banquet set up only for the victors. So when Christ promises faithful believers, conquerors, that he will give them a stone with a new name on it, he is promising to give them their admission passes to the eternal victory celebration in heaven. And the new name 
the new name will uniquely, that's on it, that only they know, it will uniquely reflect God's special love for and adoption of every true child of His. So that is the promise. If you conquer, you will receive the hidden manna. You will receive the white stone. And you know what? You could just take both of those things together, combine them, and call it eternal life. Call it heaven. That's what it is. That's what he's offering them. Conquer and you will receive. Now, some of you might be thinking, but, but salvation is not by works. It is not by works here. Salvation produces works. And he's telling them, live out the works of your salvation and carry that all the way through. You will prove that you have true saving faith and you will be rewarded. That's what he's saying. So we're not confounding being saved by grace alone. The grace that saves empowers obedience empowers the conquering, carries us from the point of salvation, the point of impact, all the way to the point of glory, resurrection, eternal life, all of that. Okay, so don't misunderstand what Christ is saying. He, his teaching here is in alignment with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And those who are will conquer and receive these promises. That's what he's saying. Now let's begin to close it up. And you might be thinking, good Lord, he's getting done early today. Don't think that yet. <laughs> because every time I ever say like, wow, we're really ahead of the schedule, then we go 10 minutes late and you go, he's a liar. <laughs> so I'm not going to jinx myself right now. Jinxing was a Greco-Roman practice. I don't know what it was. Let's begin to close, but we've got some more stuff to talk about here. Closing doesn't mean we're going to end in two minutes. It means we're going to end in 20. The teaching, now listen carefully, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was very, very attractive to the immature and to the unregenerate. Very attractive. They taught that you could be in Christ, that you could be forgiven, and that you could live however you want. That, my friends, is an attractive message to those who are infant baby believers because they don't understand certain things yet, and it's very attractive to, to those who are not believers, to those who are unregenerate. And in some ways, it's attractive to me as a Christian of about 20 years. The idea that I can have Christ and be forgiven and just live however I want, do what I want, that, I think that appeals to everyone. It really does. And I think the more that you're in the faith, the more that you come to know the Word, the more that you come to know Christ, your attitude changes. Your, your attitude switches from, you know, I want to do things that I want to do that I like to I want to glorify Christ. I want to live my life in such a way that brings Him honor, praise, and glory, right? But it's still alluring, the idea that, hey, I can do whatever I want. They literally taught that since Jesus died for all of your sins, it's okay to sin. It's okay. Does this not sound familiar to you? Are there not churches in our own community that teach the same message or a similar message? Those churches with little rainbow flags 
And you might be thinking, oh yeah, them. Not just them. Not just them. L- let, me, let me get you here. Every church, listen carefully, every church that has removed the words sin and repentance from their vocabulary is Nicolaitan in essence. Now all of a sudden we go from churches that have little rainbow flags to most churches. To the majority of churches. Especially the big churches. Well, he's a mean pastor. He talks about other churches. I'm telling you what's going on. Pop up a, a message from a large church in town and count the amount of times they, the pastor, the minister, uses the word sin or repentance. Actually, don't do it. Spare yourself of the despair. Because sin and repentance, even in our community, in churches in our community, those two words have been vanquished, removed from the speech. Every church that has removed those two words is Nicolaitan in essence. Now these churches preach the love of God and the grace of God till the cows come home. They never stop talking about those two things. But they won't talk about sin and they won't talk about repentance. And they give their hearers the impression that, is, there is, that there is nothing required of them to be in a relationship with God, to experience His blessings. They are given the impression that they can have Christ and keep the world. And these churches are full. They are full. They are brimming with people, but they are full of unconverted goats who say they love Jesus but live worldly lives. On Judgment Day, Christ, and if things don't change for them, on Judgment Day, Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. See, I want you to understand something very important this morning. The true gospel includes the words sin and repentance. Let let me repeat that. The true gospel, the, the gospel according to that 66 book Bible, it includes the words sin and repentance. I did a quick word study. The the word sin and repentance uh, appear in in the ESV version of the Bible over a thousand times. Sin is what killed us spiritually and puts us at enmity with God. Sin is what brings judgment, wrath, and eternal punishment Sin is why the world is screwed up. You think that it's categories of people that are screwing it up. We're all sinners and we're all screwing it up. And yet Jesus died to pay for our what? Our 
How can you talk about... What do they say? Jesus died to pay for something because I can't use the word sin? Maybe they don't talk about Jesus dying to pay for anything. He died a bloody, horrific death to pay for our sins, to pay for my sins. Our sins collectively were laid upon Him, and He who knew no sin became sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We are sinners, and our only remedy and hope is the blood of Christ we believe in his person and work our sins i'm trying to just say it as much as i can i don't like to say the word but i've got to because others won't if we believe in his person and work our sins will be forgiven and cleansed and if we refuse to believe in his person and work we remain in our sins and we will eventually die in our sins. And we will be made to pay for our sins in hell. How can you preach the word of God and, and not talk about sin? How can you claim to proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the word sin out? I don't... That, that, that's... That's a special kind of artistry. That's satanic artistry. Because the last thing that he wants is for people to come, who come to churches to, is to hear about sin. Because he wants to keep them in their sins so that they will be punished alongside of him. something we must talk about something that we must mention regularly i mean the good news is not good news without you have to have bad news i mean just think about it logically the bad news is that we are sinners dead in our sins and trespasses our iniquities that we will die in our sins and spend eternity paying for it. So that's the bad news. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks God. No, not one. The bad news is, is that we're sinners headed for hell. But the good news is, is that Christ came to die on a cross to pay for our sins and, right, and restore us to God in proper relationship and fellowship. I mean, you can't have good news without bad news. So I don't understand the line of thinking. Well, I kind of do, and I'll get to why, but repentance, the other word. Repentance is what sinners are commanded to, commanded to do in Scripture over and over and over. I mean, did we not just see Christ call this church to repent? I don't want to use the repent word because Jesus used it. There's a disconnect. S repentance is what sinners are commanded to do via Scripture over and over and over. God, God is calling people to repent. 
We are to repent of what? Our unbelief and turn to Christ by faith. We are to live repentant lives where we consistently turn from sin to pursue purity and righteousness. And some would say, well, I repented. Well, great. You repented of what? Your unbelief at some juncture? Yes, I did that. Well, are you still repenting? Because repentance isn't a one-time deal. It's not a one-time action. It is a disposition. It is a, a lifestyle that lasts the entire lifetime. How can you... I guess if you leave sin out, there's nothing to repent of. Maybe that's the logic of it. Repentance is huge. Those two things are left out, and when those two things are left out, that church is Nicolaitan in a sense because it is preaching. You can have it's preaching the message of the Nicolaitans. You can have Christ. You can be for. Well, you can't be. I, I don't even know how you talk about forgiveness. <laughs> I guess when you talk about forgiveness, the people are thinking, "Forgiven them for what? Is there something I need to be forgiven for? Yes, but I won't use the word because if I do, you'll leave." But it is Nicolaitan, right, if you leave those things out. Another example, every church that turns a blind eye to sin and allows it to continue among its people is Nicolaitan in essence. I keep hearing stories about how some of the larger churches in our community are now coddling folks who live in open sexual immorality. Open meaning... They're not ashamed of it. They display it publicly. And, 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 and somehow, and I know in a great many small churches, but even in some of the big churches where I know the pastors, these people are being coddled. Well, what do you suggest, Phil? We kill them? Oh, yeah, that's what I suggest. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. I, I, I suppose the pastors and parishioners don't want to scare these folks away with words like sin and repentance. Look, sinners are not to be coddled. They are to be lovingly confronted with the truth about sin. Lovingly. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads people to repentance. They are to be lovingly confronted with the truth about sin. They are to be presented with the true gospel, which includes the words sin and repentance. And if necessary, they are to be placed under church discipline. And if they still won't repent of their sin, whatever it is, they are to be removed from the congregation. That's not my rule. That's Matthew 18. Well, that just sounds so archaic and cold. Well, it's neither. It's biblical. And I am not, I, I do not enjoy getting involved in church disciplinary issues. It is my, my least favorite thing to do as a pastor. It's a very difficult thing to engage in when you have someone who professes Christ and won't budge. And usually that same person is causing trouble for others in the church. 
but they have to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. That is the message of this text. You can't pretend like you don't see it. If you see it, deal with it lovingly. And I would also add, lastly, every church, and this will resonate with you, every church that makes itself look, sound, and feel exactly like the world to attract sinners is Nicolaitan in essence. That is the thing to do today. We don't have worship services at our church. We have worship experiences with lots of smoke that makes the old people think, you know, that their asthma is acting up. <laughs> and lots of lights and lasers and, and music. Jesus loves me. Oi, 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 Jesus. Sounds like a punk song from the 80s, except for the Jesus loves me part. I mean, that you know, you could kind of tell by the the skinny jeans the pastors are wearing. It's like, I can see a vein just enculturated. I got to look. I got to look just like the guys at the mall so I can reach the guys at the mall. Well, if you're a guy and you're at the mall, you already got a problem. Amen. I go in there, I'm like, oh, I can feel the spirit come out of me. It's like walking into a Walmart, but cleaner. You just can't wear your pajamas at the mall. <laughs> or at Target. Don't you dare go in there like that. I will send you down the street. You're in the wrong store, pal. But think about it. Think about, and the, and the preaching today. I, I had a pastor earlier this year suggest that I put my sermons in a TED Talk format. Yeah, I said, what is a TED Talk? That was my, my first mistake was riding in the same vehicle with him. My second mistake was asking, what is a TED Talk? Because then going through the grapevine, I heard about it for the entire time we were in the grapevine. And by the time it was all said and done, I said, I'm going to put my sermon in the Bible. Why are you getting your preaching orders from the world? Why, are you, why do you have your ears tuned into the world to figure out how to do church, how to do ministry, how to minister, how to evangelize. We have the perfect word of God that, that is fully sufficient and instructive. It tells us everything we need to know about these things. And yet, guys are so interested or worried about reaching the culture, they become the culture to reach the culture. And they decorate their churches in such a way and, you know, pick songs that, you know, sound just like they would. I mean, most churches today, you wouldn't believe this, and maybe you'll get insulted by this, and that might be good. But listen, <laughs> most churches today, you know how they're figuring out what worship songs to do? They just pop on K-Love. That's not a good resource for true worship music. Trust me. It's not. And if you turn it on during one of their pledge you might crash your car. But they're, they're getting their music ideas from K-Love. They're getting all of their other ideas from the culture. All 
to attract people to their campuses when, in fact, we have a clear revelation and command to go and make disciples, not bring and make disciples. But I'm telling you, these churches that, that adopt all of this culture and all of these things from the apparel to the music to the looks... I mean, I had somebody tell me recently, I went to a worship service at this church and it was like a Pink Floyd concert. And I'm like, well, I would have picked Pink Floyd music over the songs they were doing. (laughs) Dark Side of the Moon, baby. But churches that are doing this are Nicolaitan, in essence. They are using the culture to draw the culture (laughs) the culture will draw the culture. You'll have culture people in your church, lots of them. And guess what they're going to do? By the way, these churches are the same ones that leave sin and repentance out of their preaching because that would just end up blowing all these people out and sending them back out. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, because of the the wrong vocabulary that you use and you're not preaching the true gospel and you're, you're fully enculturated using the culture to draw people, you end up with a church filled with goats, filled with tares. I love what MacArthur said about that issue, about those churches that, you know, worldly churches. A church that's just like the world has nothing to offer the world. It's merely one more disposable entertainment. Maybe you're wondering what happened with the church at Pergamum. Did it repent? It might have for a season. It might have held the line for a season. It might have received Christ's instruction and done what it was supposed to. Maybe for a season. We don't know for sure what we do know is that there is no church there today, nor is there a city. Only ruins remain. You have to take a a gondola up to the top of the hill to see the ancient ruins today. Conquerors receive the hidden manna and white inscribed stone. But those who profess Christ while holding the teachings and practices of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are under the judgment of Christ who bears the sharp two-edged sword. He will come in war against those who do this. And if they refuse to repent, he will lay them in ruins just like Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.